All right, good morning, Village Church. Good morning, good morning. So um, there is a really handsome man here this morning, and he's my brother. And uh, rumor has it we look alike. Um, I, I think personally I'm way better looking, but we're going to find out. But if you talk to somebody and you hear my voice come out of his mouth, but it awkwardly looks like me, but not totally, it's going to be David. And so I gave him permission this morning to tell you all of my deepest, darkest secrets about growing up. And uh, I want you to know he tormented me, abused me, and was very violent to me. So um, I'm kidding. He was, he was a good brother most of the time. So um, how many of you have watched live a child being born? I want, I want to read to you. <clears throat> I want to read to you the opening lyrics of Silent Night. In light of that, Silent Night, Holy Night, all is calm. <laughs> Complete lie. <laughs> like you find out your wife is about to have a baby and what ensues? Immediate chaos. Oh my gosh, we gotta get the bag, we gotta go to the hospital, we gotta call people on Facebook because we need to make sure everybody knows real time what's happening, right? And every second, I gotta call my mom and the in-laws and my siblings and everybody's gotta start praying, put it on the church newsletter and then we move and we go to the hospital. And all the questions and all the anxiety and all the hormones. And we got to make sure everything is okay. And who's going to be in the room? Is the mother-in-law going to be in the room? Right? <laughs> oh, you mothers-in-law, you get this. You're like, I want to be there. And then we think about uh, just the insanity in those moments. So I learned very quickly um, after having two children, do not let my wife hold my left hand with my ring finger because I almost lost my fingers uh, I learned by the third baby, give her my right hand because she will crush it otherwise. And everything about having a baby is absolute chaos. And, and just rewind, right? Ladies, how many of you love traveling with a baby? Anybody? Right? No hands went up. You're like, yeah, I love being in the car when I'm nine months pregnant. How about a donkey traveling like, oh, I don't know, a few days um, in the cold and in the night, sleeping outside? Anybody? Well, you think about like the birth of Jesus, and honestly, the whole thing sounds incredibly chaotic. It does not sound like everything is calm and everything is peaceful. And I hear Mary screaming in my head now, before I had a baby, right? My wife had a baby, let's be clear. Before my wife had a baby, this song made sense. Now, since I've witnessed childbirth, I, every time I hear this, I think something is completely inaccurate about this until... There's this moment, right, where everything is going nuts, everybody's kind of yelling, the nurses are going back and forth, and then all at once, everything is quiet. And they take this baby, and they put it on the mother's chest, and the whole room is silent. And the baby and the mom, they just look at each other, and there's this moment, and all of a sudden, out of complete and utter chaos, and, if, and right before the most incredible moments of pain a woman could ever experience, um, right in these moments is just this experience of overwhelming peace. And I think everybody on the planet would love to have this peace invade your chaos. Because let's be honest, like as a pastor, I get to witness the internal, relational, emotional, psychological chaos that is everywhere. And Christmas just pushes this to the limits. And there is this chaos happening. And, and how many of you, let's be honest, don't raise your hand, it'll be rhetorical. How many of you want some kind of supernatural, immediate chaos, or, or not chaos, peace to enter into your chaos and bring calm. Anybody? All, all I know is Christmas is insane for everybody I know. It's insane for me. 
And I just know that in those moments where we get peace, it is one of the most precious things on the planet. And people are dying, they're dying for peace. They're dying for internal peace, peace with God, social peace, relational peace, peace with family, peace with in-laws, peace with everybody you can imagine. And Christmas just has a way of creating tumult and chaos. And, and when you get peace, peace just says this, everything is going to be okay. In the chaos, you're wondering, is this going to work out? And as soon as the mom gets to hold the baby, there's this overwhelming sense that everything is going to be, it's going to be okay. We can deal with it. I have this moment. I, I can't control what's going to happen in the moments to follow, but in this moment, right here, right now, everything's going to be just fine. I want you to open up your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, you're going to start in verse 6. And we have been uh, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for four weeks now. Uh, and this is the final sermon on this particular verse. Come Christmas Eve to hear the closing. We're going to talk about the rest of Isaiah chapter 9 on Christmas Eve. I want to read to you the passage of Scripture, and then I want you to understand the chaos that is happening in this context. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, this morning's sermon, Prince of Peace. And, and I want you to listen in verse seven. When this child grows up, what this child is going to accomplish internationally. Here's what it says. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal, the passion of the Lord of hosts or the Lord of angels will do this. So I want to bring you back 2,700 years into the context of what's happening when Isaiah gives this prophecy to the nation of Israel. And one of the best ways I can do this is, I think, by giving you an analogy. When you think in terms of the um, American mindset right now, what is the greatest fear or threat of most Americans? Uh, most of us would say ISIS. And I want you to imagine for a moment, um, somehow, in some way, there is a civil war going on in the United States of America, and the civil war is based in religious and social, it's based on religious and social issues. We're divided as a nation, and so ultimately there's a civil war, and we divide the nation between the East and the West. And in this division now, there are two armies, there are two governments, there are two um, presidents, and so now we have a divided nation. And I want you to imagine that um, ISIS finally makes headway into the East Coast and takes over all of the eastern half of America. Now, how would you feel about this? You'd be devastated. This is honestly one of our worst fears. Now I want you to imagine they take our women and our children, they ship them across the sea, and they fly them to Iran and Syria and Iraq, and they make them their slaves. Now I want you to imagine this goes on, and about 100 years later, um, an even more evil empire than ISIS takes over. And they take over the eastern half of the United States, continuing to enslave Americans and shipping them across the world to be slaves in their homeland. Not only that, but they make headways and eventually shut down the entire west coast of America. What's left are women, children that are left, um, dead husbands, fathers, and sons everywhere, and a torn nation overseen by our worst enemy, of course, aided and abetted by Canada. <laughs> Sorry. 
So in this scenario, it feels unrealistic. It feels impossible. America would never let this happen. But I want you to get this, that Israel had the unity, unity and identity that Americans have. We were one. We were one nation under God. We had God's blessing. We were powerful. Armies could not stop us. We rose out of nothing and grew to be a powerful nation. God was on our side. And I want you to understand that in the context, what's happening here is that there's already been a civil war, that Israel has already been divided into two nations. And what's about to happen in, say, 10, 20, or 30 years after this prophecy is made is that one of the most evil empires on the planet is going to march from the north through their metaphorical Canada and is going to come through and is going to devour them from the ground up. And they're going to ship their people across the world. I want you to get this, that that emotional experience that you have, I want you to imagine you are a slave in Syria and that your children are slaves in Syria and you, all you want to do is go back home. And generation comes and generation comes. And this is the political, social, economic, religious context that Isaiah is speaking into. Now he makes this promise, a child is going to be born and the government will be upon his shoulders. You can see in this moment, right, why it is so valuable for them to have a leader that will rule the entire world with righteousness and justice. But I want you to catch the absolute irony of this prophecy. About 10, 20, or 30 years after this prophecy is made, they are going to be overtaken by ISIS, metaphorically speaking. They are going to be enslaved. And they're going to hear this. They're going to experience this. And they are going to lose faith. They're going to say, God, you made a promise to us. You said that a child was going to be born. And that the government would be upon his shoulders. And he would be the prince of peace. And he would rule this world with righteousness and justice. And here's the absolute irony of this passage. Is that the fulfillment of this child being born does not happen for 700 years. Would you lose faith over 700 years? hundred years. Would you look at a prophecy like this and say, I believe God's word. Now, when you look at the Jewish experience of this time, especially the first century, can you understand the lack of faith? And not only after Assyria and then Babylon and then came Greece and then came Rome. And by the time we get to the first century, Rome had its powerful thumb on their neck and held them down and did not allow them to flourish or grow. So I want you to just get this, right? This is emotional. This is painful. We read this 2,700 years later, removed from the emotional context. This is a gut-wrenching prophecy for the people of Israel to receive. And in this, I love this, that we've already seen that this leader who's going to come is going to be infinite in wisdom. It's going to be infinite in power. It will be mighty because he will be God in the flesh. We see that last week he'll be a father to the nation who will provide security and identity and leadership to the nation. And finally, he's going to usher in worldwide peace. So before you think we're talking about inner peace in the sermon, here's what I want you to understand. The primary context of Prince of Peace is social, military, economic peace. That is the kind of peace this text is looking forward to. How many of you would love to know that a righteous, just king, God himself, will rule over every single nation and subject every evil under his feet, right? Don't we want this and look forward to this? And we have it good here. How much more would this prophecy be meaningful to Christians right now in Iraq and Syria and across the world and in, the, and, and, and in Africa? I mean, how much more do these prophecies have emotional weight? And, and I want you to get this, right? You have to remove yourself temporarily from your safe Americanism and put yourself in these contexts to understand how meaningful this stuff was. And so here's, I just want to be clear about something. Jesus, when he comes, right, now do you get why the Jews 
were waiting for a military leader, right? Because what was the promise? International peace, a government that will be run by a man with justice and righteousness. And when Jesus comes, I, I don't know if you noticed, but when Jesus came, he was killed by Rome. He didn't exactly overtake Rome, right? And he did not meet their most basic fundamental expectations. And so people would say, how are you the Messiah? How are you the Prince of Peace if there's war all around us, if there's oppression all around us, if you're not sitting on the throne of David and ruling? And I want to tell you something that Jesus understands because he's infinitely smarter than us. He is the wonderful counselor, perfect in wisdom. Here's what he gets. World peace is an illusion unless there's a change of heart. World peace is impossible unless everyone living in the world has a new heart. So he could. He could just go to everybody and just say, you know what, I'm going to reign, I'm going to rule, deal with it. But he didn't do that. He understood that I, I have to come and I have to deal with the very core root of the issue. Only then will world peace be possible. I have to come and deal with, A, your peace with God, be your inner peace. And then finally, we can get to the social, international, political, governmental aspects of peace. But if you don't have peace with God and inside of you, all that will happen, the war inside of you will come out of you. And this is what we see. All we see on the outside is just a reflection of the internal war going on in the hearts and minds of people. So we get to um, this word peace. In the Old Testament, it means shalom. So if you have your notes, you can take these out. Five um, different We'll say aspects of the word shalom. Uh, number one, shalom means the absence of conflict. That's not all it is, but that's a piece of it. Um, and so some people will just say, peace, this is all it is. Now I want to give you an illustration. If Hamas and Israel are not shooting missiles at each other, do they have shalom? No, there's an absence of conflict. There's an absence of missiles. There's an absence of battle. But are they at peace? Everybody, the answer is... No, if a husband and wife are sitting with each other at a dining room table and they're not speaking to each other, they're not yelling, but they're not talking, is there shalom? The answer is no. An absence of conflict is a piece of this. Now then there has to be, number two, the presence of unity. Uh, there has to be the presence of something positive that brings two people together. Shalom is not two people coexisting Shalom is the presence of two relational entities coming together and actually having a unified social experience. It could be a husband and a wife or, God willing, one day Hamas and Israel should they all trust in Jesus Christ. Number three, emotional rest. This is just the emotional experience of, you know, that feeling when everything is okay. Not only that there's just no fighting, but you just kind of look at your life and you think, you know what, all my relationships are kind of at peace right now. It also has to do with external rest, that the context that we live in as a community is at peace, not just with each other, but is at peace with the tribes of the nations around us. And then number five, and I think this is so important, this is spiritual rest, because you can have one through four to a degree but if you miss the spiritual component to shalom, it stops being shalom and it just ends up being worldly peace. And there's something about the spiritual dynamic to this, I think that um, basically becomes the linchpin for this word. And so here's what I wanna do with you this morning. We're gonna talk about three aspects of shalom. Some of you might say, I want shalom, I want peace, I want all of this, I want this equilibrium, I want this social peace, this relational peace, this emotional peace, this spiritual peace, give this to me. 
And so here's what I want to say to you. Many of you want to go to Jesus and say, take my chaos, give me your peace, and let's just walk away and call this a day. But there is a little bit of method to building a peaceful life. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the architecture of peace. We're going to build the house of peace. I'm going to show you three simple things um, that if any of these are missing, you'll never have a home built on peace. Your life will never have a semblance of peace to it. And so you can't bypass the foundations. And I just want to talk to everybody in this room who's not a Christian for a moment because I do understand at Christmas season, your husband or your wife or your son or your daughter, your mom or your dad will, will drag you to church. And uh, I love it because oftentimes you just see this look of despondency, like, oh, I'm here. And we don't want this to be miserable for you. And I understand that for some of you it is. And, but here's what I want to just lovingly communicate to you because I'm a preacher and I can do this, is that you will never, ever, ever go near shalom in any way, shape, or form until you have peace with God. You hear Christians say this all the time. It's not a cliche. This is the most important step you'll ever take to accomplish anything in your life, let alone to actually experience what God intends for humanity to have, which is this multifaceted and beautiful shalom. So number one in your notes is peace with God. I want to read to you Romans chapter 5 verse 1. It says, therefore, we have been justified by faith. The word justification means uh, very simply that we are made right with God. Our sins are forgiven. Um, technically, this is a legal term. That means all the punishment for your sins has been paid for. All the legal demands for your sin before God have been satisfied. So if you are justified, I want you to hear this very carefully, and you die and you stand before God on the day of judgment, every one of your sins will be fully paid for because the wrath of God has been satisfied, because Jesus paid the price for you. You hear me, you want to be justified. It is a legal Greek term, and God is a law-abiding judge. He is a perfect judge and always executes justice perfectly, and here's what he knows. Every uh, sin must be righteously dealt with. So we tell everybody, you can either, number one, pay for your sins, or number two, have Jesus pay them for you. I just want to strongly encourage you, allow Jesus to pay for them for you because nobody can escape the wrath of God. And Jesus took the wrath of God for us on our behalf. And so here's what we say in the eternal economy, in the, uh, we'll say, the world um, that we live in, when we all die, we will end up being in, under God's jurisdiction. And this is the way God rules and has set the laws of the universe to function. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and everybody will die and everybody will face judgment and everybody will have every one of their sins paid for either by you or by Jesus. And so he says, we Christians, we've been justified by faith. All right, pop quiz, are you saved by good works? Everybody say no. No, because you will never have enough good work equity to stand before God and pay off your sin debt. It is absolutely impossible. And the Bible makes it clear over and over and over again. And so the mantra of, of most quasi-religious Americans is good people go to heaven. And the mantra of the Bible is it's absolute utter foolishness. And it, that is a lie that if you stand before God and you rely on your good works to get you into heaven, nothing good will happen. And so the Bible enters into um, all of these lies and it says, no, justification or rightness with God or the payment for your sins, it happens not by good works, um, but it happens only by faith. Faith is a simple word. It means either to trust in or to believe in. It's not just mental. Um, it's actually a, a decision you make to actually trust who God is and what he's done for you. And so 
again, this may feel complicated on one level, but it's actually not. God loves you so much that he paid the price for your sins and he said, you'll never be good enough. And anyways, good dads don't look at their kids and say, I'll love you if you're good enough. That's a terrible dad. He looks at you and says, I'll love you no matter what. And I'm offering reconciliation. I'm offering to you peace. I'm offering to you unity. I'm offering to you social rest eventually, internal rest now, spiritual rest now. I'm offering these to you free of charge. Jesus paid it all. And I'm giving this to you totally free. Well, what do I have to pay for it? Answer is nothing. Jesus paid it all. It's only by faith. Just, just ask me and I'll give it to you. Like, just trust me and I'll, I'll give this to you. It's done. Then it just says, here's what he says. Since therefore we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Who is it through? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Bible, this is just one verse of many. Um, I think this is the most succinct. It's just really clear you will never have peace with God unless you get it through Jesus. And you don't get to make up who Jesus is. Jesus is who the Bible says he is. You don't get to say, I like this part of Jesus and not that part of Jesus. I mean, all of our conceptions about Jesus come from scriptures. And so we look at the whole of scripture and say, this is Jesus as far as he's been revealed to us. The good, the bad, the Jesus who overturns tables, the Jesus who died on the cross, the Jesus who preached really difficult sermons, like that Jesus is our Jesus. And it's the only Jesus. And so we look and we say this, the Lord Jesus is revealed in scripture. He is the only way. That's it. There's no, no other options. And so we look at everybody, and I know some of you are visiting here. I just want to look at you and say, um, I'm not judging you. Nobody here is going to judge you. We don't judge. That's not our job. That's God's job. God judges the living and the dead. Our job, very simply, is to share the awesome news that you can absolutely have salvation right now, today, free, and you can stop all the religion and you can start trusting. And you can realize that anybody here who loves Jesus, who is saved by faith, none of us in this room think we're better than anybody else, or we shouldn't at least, and none of us think we're, God's going to like us more because we went to church today. <laughs> can I get an amen from that one, Ville Church, right? So I want to just talk to you and say, this is the foundation. So now I want to I transition. We'll go to point number two, and we'll spend the most of our time here um, in point number two, but I want you to catch this. If you don't have peace with God, you will never get the peace of God. So I want to read this for you, and then we'll spend some time in this text. Um, Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 4, verse 5, the Lord is at hand, meaning he, he's going to come any day. Again, that was 2,000 years ago, but you see the way Christians think and live. We live with this immediate expectancy that it could be today, it could be today. It says the Lord is at hand, so therefore do not be anxious about, what is it? Anything. But in, say it with me, everything by prayer and supplications with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the result of that. The peace of God, which, this is funny to me, surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So I, I want to share with you just four things about this text, about the peace of God, um, that I think are going to be just be so helpful for us. Go to the next slide. Number one, the obstacle to shalom is anxiety. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about, what is it? Anything. So most people, when they think of peace, they want equilibrium. And you know what can give you equal, equilibrium? Working out, yoga, other things. Stuff that's just, honestly, like God has given us this ability that when we use our bodies in a certain way, we get some excess energy out. We can kind of just get level and we can have equilibrium inside of ourselves. 
But what God wants for every single person is more than just equilibrium. He wants you to have actually, and, and in his mind, it's actually a transaction where he has this thing called peace and he gives it to you. The problem with peace is that it's very hard to define. And we're gonna see this. Some of you are like, measure peace for me. And it's incredibly difficult to measure. We're gonna try here. I'm gonna try to give you a measurement for it in a bit. Um, but then he, then he goes and he says, but I want you to catch this. Like, this is the obstacle. Most of us are filled with anxiety, but this is the human experience, right? And I could say to you, raise your hands if you have any level of anxiety right now. And if you didn't raise your hand, to some degree, you would not be being honest about the true human experience. There are anxieties inside of us all around us. But then he goes on and he says, number two, the pathway to shalom, if you wanna go from your anxiety, believer in Jesus Christ, right? I'm talking to Christians now, not non-Christians. Christian, if you wanna go from this place of anxiety, which is the normal human experience, here's what I want you to see. Number two, that the pathway to shalom is extraordinary, unordinary prayer. I know this is weird for most because most Christians have not spent any difficult time working through in labored prayer, uh, we'll say the burden of their stress and their anxiety. We're just like, God, take it away, take it away, take it away, take it away. I don't wanna have to do anything for you to take it away. Just take it away. Like my salvation, which is free and easy. Uh, take it like that. You just give me your peace. But here's what he says. In everything, now, does everything mean some things or everything? Everything. By prayer and supplication. By the way, supplication is a prayer where you're asking God for something. And with thanksgiving, which is prayer where you give thanks to God. Let your requests be made known to God. And so you're in this anxious state, which is the human experience. And you're wanting God's peace. And here's what he says. Peace is access through prayer. So if you don't pray, you don't get ultimately this supernatural peace of God that he's gonna offer. And so I love this. He's like, in everything. I mean, not sometimes, not on Fridays at three o'clock, but in everything, if you want the peace of God, our natural state, our natural trajectory, our natural bent is so powerfully toward anxiety that if you don't learn how to pray, you will not know what God's peace is. I want you to be clear with me. Most Christians don't know the kind of peace that Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter four. Most don't. Um, we are, are like people who live in third world countries who the best water we have ever had has been water that most Americans won't touch. And then finally, one day when you actually have this pure drinking water, you finally understand the difference uh, between the brown water you've been drinking your whole life and the pure water that Jesus Christ offers to you. But it takes a little bit of work and a little bit of prayer to finally get to this place where you can experience the supernatural peace of God because typically what God doesn't just do is say, uh, I'm just gonna throw it at you and you're gonna have it at all times. Because the common experience for most Christians is even though salvation is free, peace is not easy. Salvation is free, peace is not easy. Let's go to the third thing. I want you to notice the results of prayer. And, this is all one sentence, by the way. I know there's a period in English, but this is one big sentence. And, as a result of your prayer, the peace of God, it's not just any shalom, this is, this is bigger. It surpasses all understanding. Okay, well then how do I know when I have it? You'll know. How do I know when I don't have it? Well, you won't know until one day you do have it. And when you do have it, you'll realize it. Well, that doesn't really help me very much. I really love quantifying things, trust me, okay? Like, I really wanna look at you and say, here's an entity called peace. I'm gonna deposit it into your spiritual account. Now the transaction has been made. And the Bible just doesn't give us this category. Here's what it says. Most Christians, at the end of the day, aren't gonna get this because they're not gonna go through the hard work and labor of a disciplined prayer life. 
But the hard work and labor of a disciplined prayer life is a peace that once you have it surpasses understanding and is different and beautiful and worth it. And now once you have the pure drinking water of the peace of God, who wants to go back to the brown water? Anyone? No, you wanna fight for it. And most people don't fight through their pain, anxiety, and difficulty because they don't have a clue what the peace of God, the pure drinking water that God offers that is kind of um, unexplainable because it surpasses understanding. We don't know it, so we don't pursue it. But once you go through enough anxiety, because what does anxiety do? It draws you to your knees on your face before God. Once you go through anxiety with persistent prayer, here's what you're gonna find. Eventually, you'll learn what the supernatural peace of God is. And it will guard your heart and your mind from the anxieties that typically come up. Most of us are riddled with anxiety because we've never actually persevered enough with discipline and prayer to actually get it. And then here's the fourth one. Notice the source of shalom. It's in Jesus. Will you get shalom anywhere else? No, never. John 14, 27, Jesus says, and I think this is kind of crazy. Um, it is the day before he's gonna be killed and he says this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Is there a worldly peace? Is there an equilibrium that you can achieve in this world, an emotional, we'll say homeostasis? The answer is yes. Is that the kind of peace Jesus is talking about? No. It is surpassing understanding. It is quantifiably difficult to put into words. But when the Christian has it, the Christian knows it. And so he says this, not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What I think is also crazy about this is that Jesus is saying, look, I'm gonna give you my peace. It's not the world's peace. And little do they know, uh, I mean, Jesus could look at them and say, hey, tomorrow I'm gonna be imprisoned and the following day I'm gonna be executed on a cross. But here's what you're gonna have. Supernatural peace that surpasses understanding. That's insanity, honestly. Jesus is constantly preparing his disciples. And he's saying, the world is gonna get nuts. Life is gonna get hard. Everything at you is gonna make you wanna be worried and anxious. But I'm gonna enter into this and I'm gonna be the Prince of Peace. And because you have peace with God, now God's peace, you have access to it. I'm gonna give it to you. You have all access to it. And when you're anxious and when you're worried, you get on your face and you pray in every circumstance. And this is, we'll say, the means by which God has chosen to dispense his supernatural peace. It is through the means of prayer. And that's what Philippians 4 says. In Mark chapter 4, verse 36, there's this huge storm. And uh, here's what happens. A great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat. So the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the storm was so bad that all of the disciples thought they were going to die. Have you ever been in a boat where the storm was so bad that you thought you were going to die? Most of you have not. Maybe a few of you have. And they woke him and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing, that we're dying here? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great, great calm. I want you to understand this, that Jesus' peace does not mean that life will be easy. Jesus' peace is in the midst of all of this chaos. So some of you look at this and say, oh, the peace of Jesus is the fact that he calmed the storm. No, the peace of Jesus is that he can fall asleep in the middle of a storm. 
That is what is crazy about the supernatural peace of Jesus. Jesus is like, okay, look, y'all, look, I can just tell the sea to be quiet. Now, just remember that when you're in the sea, I control the sea. And if I don't want you to die, you're not gonna die. So just relax. And this is kind of Jesus's motto. It's like, everything's gonna be okay. Well, what if they kill me? It will be fine. But what if they take everything I have? It's gonna be okay. Are you in Christ? But it doesn't feel okay. You need to get on your face and pray. But this is hard. I get that it's hard. But if you there will be a supernatural uh, peace that surpasses even the most logical understanding. And people will look at you and say, why are you okay when they're taking all of your possessions? Why are they okay when they're taking the most important things to you? And you'll be like, it's hard to under explain it. It surpasses understanding. You know, it's, it's different. It sticks out. And finally, number three, peace toward man. Now, I want you to notice the preposition here. The, the preposition is toward, not with. Because Jesus does not promise that you're gonna be at peace with other people if you come to him and have the peace of Christ. Do you get that? Like, that's, that's not his promise. In fact, his promise is most likely that life is gonna be really hard um, and there's gonna be a lot of conflict, relational conflict, international conflict. Like, this is kind of the story of your life. But here's what I can tell you, that you can have peace toward people even if they don't give you peace. You can be calm, you can have shalom, you can have more than equilibrium, when people attack you and come at you. And so I was trying to think, okay, how, how could we measure, how could we prove that somebody actually has the supernatural peace of God in their lives in this moment? And number one, this is the best description I could think of, joyful calm when attacked by non-Christians. Verbally, physically, it doesn't matter. I mean, the ability to be relaxed, to have no anxiousness or anxiety or fear in those moments, when somebody is verbally lashing out at you on Facebook, online, it could be in person, when somebody threatens you, like this is when you know there's something supernatural going on inside of you. When there is chaos around you that begins to threaten you and you are calm. Because really you truly believe, I'm in Christ. It might be hard, but it's gonna be okay. And then number two, this may seem like not a big deal to most of you, but have you ever found that Christians have a hard time being unified with Christians, right? There's something very unique and very special when you go into a church and they all like each other, right? Um, it's kind of it's weird. Uh, and this is actually, I think, when you can see Christians who are at peace with other Christians, this is one of those signs that they have peace with God, they have the peace of God, and that peace is being worked out with each other. We just find in so many churches, Christians are at each other's throats. And I think that is so sad and it's so unnecessary. And our hope is that when you come to Village Church, that even every once in a while, you'll see, you know, two people going at it. And, um, but that they'll forgive each other and we'll, we'll move past it. You know, our hope is that you find um, this joyful unity amongst the Christians here at the Village Church. I, I want to give you what I think is, are the two remedies. If, you are live, if you're a follower of Jesus and you are just void of peace in your life, just two simple things. Number one, get on your face and pray, and pray, and pray, and pray, and pray, and pray. What you do in the physical has spiritual ramifications. And the physical act that God has given us to change the spiritual realm, especially as it pertains to anxiety and worry and fear and chaos, is prayer. So you can avoid this, but if you avoid this, you will not experience the peace that surpasses understanding from the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. That's number one. Number two, 
is so simple. It's simple obedience. Every time you do what God says, will you grow in peace? The answer is yes. And every time you do the opposite of what he says, what will happen? Chaos. It might be small pieces of chaos, it might be big, it might spark, spark small and, grow, and then grow. But it's so simple that most Christians live a chaotic spiritual life because we are not obedient and we've, we've stopped praying. So simple. And this is why, what I love about the peace of God. He doesn't say, jump through 8,000 hoops and then pray, it works out and cross your fingers. And then it's just very simple. Pray. Whenever you feel this, you get on your face and pray. That's what you do. And then when you're in these moments, you're gonna be tempted to do all these dumb things. Don't do them. <laughs> and if you can pray and have a little bit of discipline, wait, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will overtake you. Now, isn't that so ridiculous and simple? But what do we do? What is the natural inclination in chaos? We get chaotic, we get busy, and then we complain, and then we live according to our flesh, and then we yell, and we do dumb things, guilty, right? And then we get upset, and then there's relational chaos, and then God and I are like frustrated. It's like, uh, you know, and then my wife and I are frustrated, my kids and I are frustrated. And it's like, we intuitively do the opposite, and God just enters in and says, y'all, let's just be simple about this. Are you anxious? Yes, because you're human. Pray. But it didn't go away because you didn't pray long enough. Or because you thought prayer was like a one-time thing just to get rid of the problem. It's like a medication. No, it's a lifestyle. You want the supernatural peace of God. Then you know the Bible when it says to do things? <laughs> do it. <laughs> and it's so simple. And yet, we go back to the beginning of the equation. We go back to the foundation. None of this is possible if you don't first trust in Jesus. I want to land here because I want you to get what Jesus gets. Jesus gets that that the requirement for world peace is, is peace with God. That the requirements for the whole world being led by an awesome leader and that, that leader leading everybody to world peace um, will only happen if the hearts of the people are right with God. That's it. And so here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is entering and he's building a kingdom. He's building a kingdom of people who were in chaos and he's reconciling them to himself by faith in Jesus. And he is starting to take our chaos in the kingdom of God, we call it the church, and he's starting to create peace. And this peace is gonna grow amongst ourselves and the world is gonna get more chaotic and the world comes at the church and the world is attacking the church and the church is like, we're, everything's gonna be okay. It's gonna be fine because we're in Christ. And this is the story, this is the narrative. And then one day Jesus is gonna come back, he's gonna judge the living and the dead. And I promise you this, you will need to have peace with God if you're gonna make it through that day. You're gonna need to have it. And Jesus is going to be the Prince of Peace, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the, the wonderful counselor who will hold the government on his shoulders and he will do it in such a way where the hearts of the people that he rule will be at peace with each other because they're at peace with him and they have the supernatural peace of God. And so if you want your world to be more peaceful, get right with God, gain the supernatural peace of God, and then watch the relationships around you actually start to grow in the kind of peace that you wanna have. There's war because we're at war with ourselves, but the peace that we want ultimately only comes through Jesus Christ. And so Christmas, believers in Jesus, don't be chaotic. Don't go around and be a crazy person. Fight for the peace of God and show people what the Prince of Peace can actually do in your heart and mind. And if you don't have it, then maybe this is the season where you realize I need to learn how to pray and I need to learn how to obey in the most simple things. Amen, Village Church? So we're gonna finish all of this on Christmas Eve, 3.30 and 5 o'clock. I wanna invite you, and uh, we're gonna throw a little bit of an audible before we pray. I'm gonna invite our kids to come on in, 
And uh, Village Kids is going to close our service. They've been working on this song for, I think, four weeks now. And uh, we have, I think, some of the most amazing kids on the planet. And so Village Kids, I want to invite you all to come on up front. And so I want to tell you how this is going to work with Village Kids. First and foremost, um, moms and dads, I know that you guys love taking pictures of your kids, so we want to welcome you. If you want to do that, kind of take this time and come up to the front row or two. And, and then, um, so Village Church, you have two options. Option number one is you can sit and stare and be like, oh, that's super cute, which it is. Um, or the lyrics will be on the screen and we want to encourage you to let our kids lead you in worship. And so we're going to stay seated so that everybody can see what's going on. But we want to encourage all of you. Um, when the song comes on, we want to encourage you to sing with all of our kids. And uh, then I'm going to come up and give a benediction when we are done. <laughs>